Today, a special election season edition of Peace Talks Radio, seeking civility in political discourse. If you're going to mouth, I'm telling you what, what factcheck.com tells me. Put an Obama bumper sticker times. on your forehead when you do this. A whopping 85% of Americans surveyed say that political discourse is becoming increasingly uncivilized. From candidates on the campaign trail, these two tough back to back speeches clearly signal a new phase in the campaign. The two are both now attacking each other by name. To the partisan pundits on radio and TV. But, and but I, don't look, come on here hey, and blame Fox get, News for your don't guys' good loss. Don't get too excited about this. What? To the citizens on the street. The Republicans oh, are oh, you trying to provoke this crowd. And at the dining room tables of our homes. He said to me, Mom, you are the most intolerant person I've ever met. What do you mean, me intolerant? We'll hear what some say are the source of the problem and some possible solutions. Seeking civility and political discourse, today from Peace Talks Radio. This is Seeking Civility in Political Discourse, a Peace Talks Radio election season special. Peace Talks Radio is the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. And whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others, in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we revisit a topic we explored in 2004, the loss of civility in our political discourse. And we'll start with some survey results. A Weber Shandwick Powell Tate KRC research poll of 1,000 Americans in 2012 found that 80% of Americans saw political campaigns as uncivil, 85% saying that politics in general is becoming more uncivil. From the poll's website, those polls said that incivility in government is harming America's future and that incivility prevents the country from moving forward. And this is just one of several recent surveys which all show the same results. People find the political world uncivil. They overwhelmingly blame the politicians. About half blame the media for contributing to it. And most think it's something we're just stuck with and will get worse. When asked to define civility, respondents gravitated to the word respect and offered commentary such as, quote, treating others as you would want to be treated and interacting with others with politeness and patience, even under difficult circumstances. Today on our program, an assessment of the degree of the problem and some ideas on how to address it from a number of different people. We'll hear from a sitting Democratic congressman, a former long-term Republican congresswoman and civility activist, both of whom actually agree on several things they think will help that uh, you might not have thought about. We'll also talk with two media analysts who'll comment on the media's role in heightening incivility and political discourse. And later, we'll hear from a woman who's launched an online project she thinks may help things a bit by taking a kitchen table around the country. But we'll start with a story from a gentleman who remembers it all being a lot more cordial on Capitol Hill. Art Schreiber was in his late 30s when he was covering Congress in Washington, D.C. for Westinghouse Broadcasting in the 1960s, when Lyndon Johnson was in the White House. Uh, I'll give you a, a story that the great Everett Dirksen told me. And he was a senator, Republican senator from Illinois. And I used to love, as did several other reporters, to go to his office after work and get him to tell stories because he was a marvelous storyteller and he had, in my opinion, uh, the greatest command of the English language of any politician I ever covered. And so I go to his office one, uh, one afternoon 
Well, uh, I and a few other reporters went in, and we were sitting around, and, and the senator came in. And he used to say, well, what do you want to know now? And I said, Senator, why is it the president, Lyndon Johnson, is having so much difficulty with Vietnam when he had such confidence and success as majority leader when he was in the Senate? He said, well, I'll tell you. When Lyndon was the majority leader and I was the minority leader, you know, he could have summoned me to his office any time he wanted. He said, but my phone would ring and he'd say, Ev, I got a problem and I'm coming down. And he said, I would pull out this left-hand drawer and he had this huge desk in his huge office, pulled out a bottle of bourbon and two glasses and set it on his desk. And he said, pretty soon I'd hear a knock at that door back there and I'd yell, come in. And Lyndon would get a big grin on his face and he'd walk up to the desk and he'd say, Ev, when the bottle's empty, we'll have a deal. Now, I, I don't tell that story because uh, about the drinking. Yeah, they all enjoyed a few drinks. But the point is that they could make a deal. They didn't have to drink, but they made a deal. And, and Lyndon Johnson understood the other party. He used to always say to us uh, when we'd talk to him about meeting someone or talking to someone or making a, a, a compromise, he would say, I want to meet them face to face and we'll talk it out. And that, that went on all the time in politics. Then as Everett Dirksen said, as president, Lyndon couldn't just pick up the phone and say, I'm coming down. Presidents can't do that. Uh, there are too many secret service and it's too cumbersome uh, to just walk the halls as he did in Congress. 20 years after Art Schreiber was reporting on Capitol Hill, Republican Congresswoman Connie Morella was just beginning the first of her eight consecutive terms representing Maryland's 8th Congressional District. It was 1987, and this was her take on the civility between parties back then. I represented a very competitive district, uh, and so I think that is a healthy thing, because it, immediately it says, reach out to the other side, work together, this is what your constituency want. Obviously, many other members of the Congresses during which uh, time I served felt the same way. We had many examples of spirited debate. We had partisanship, but we also knew that the way to accomplish something was through compromise, respect the differences, and a belief that in order to get something done, you needed to have a strategy and a plan, and that required both sides of the aisle. So I think that was a, a sense that members had more than they have now. Ohio 17th District Democrat Tim Ryan began his run in Congress the year after Connie Morella was finally defeated in the re-election bid. Here's his take on the state of political civility from when he started in 2003 up to the present. At the time, they seemed, uh, you know, fairly harsh and aggressive, and it was, you know, uh, uh, immediately after um, 
9-11 and the unity had kind of dissolved and, you know, wars were being started and talked about and all of that. So I thought it was harsh, but I don't think it's anything like it is today. I mean, it's, it seems, and, you know, it's it's a little further away, but it seems like the disagreements we had with George Bush um, were on policy matters. And today it's Barack Obama was not born in America. I want to see his birth certificate, you know, uh, he's lying about what religion he practices and all of these different things. So it's gone from, you know, having a pretty heated discussion on policy to getting very, very uh, personal. You know, who would have thought? Uh, I'm sure there was a lot of people who wanted to scream at uh, George W. Bush that he was lying about, uh, you know, going into Iraq at the State of the Union. Uh, but no one did it. And, you know, and, you know, as we know from a year or two ago when uh, Congressman Joe Wilson screamed out in the middle of the State of the Union uh, that Barack Obama was a liar. So that's kind of uh, the changes that have happened in the past 10 years. What's your theory about what's ramped it up so much? I think it's a lot of different things. I think it's um, a lot of the economic anxiety that's out there, I think, always gets pushed on the back burner and we try to blame some other things. But I really do think there's a general angst in the country of how are we going to make ends meet as a family or as a as a small business. And uh, that anxiety filters out into the public debate. And, you know, people are looking for reasons to uh, blame or people to blame for that, uh, the level of inequality, the food insecurity, the energy costs, health care costs, whatever the case may be. Um, and so I think uh, a lot of times that that uh, income inequality is, is driving a lot of this. And then media uh, on top of it that really preys off of that uh, stress and distress and really, uh, you know, kind of wedges you in the one camp or the other. And that kind of evolution over the past few years has really poisoned the political debate. And then there's also the issue of um, the redistricting process that we have. Okay, now brace yourself. Listen to this. Agreement between Democrat and Republican, Ryan and Morella, naming the same three things that are contributing to rancorous political discourse and government gridlock. We couldn't get their schedules to coincide, so I interviewed them separately, and neither heard what the other had said. Districts have become either really, really red or really, really blue. Gerrymandering, when you leave every 10 years up to the political bodies to carve the lines that uh, members of Congress will be looking at and will have to adhere to for a re-election, that's pretty dangerous stuff. I mean, you're putting it into the hands of those people of one particular party, whichever is the majority party, to do it. And so not many members of Congress have to come down to uh, Washington, D.C., from wherever they're from in the country, and actually look to make compromise. They, they are more concerned about protecting either their left flank or their right flank in a primary election as opposed to having a general election where they need to appeal to a broader audience. The primary, when you think about the fact that not everybody who's eligible to vote even registers. But then look at the number of people who vote in primaries, a very small number. And they have traditionally been those on two extremes. They're small in numbers, extremes left, extremes right, and they vote. 
So you can have the candidates chosen for important positions chosen by a very small number of people who are not thinking about a centrist point of view, who are not thinking about compromise, but are thinking their way or the highway. So I think something should be done to um, get more people to vote in primaries. And I think that's hurt it. And then, you know, the gasoline on the fire is in the last uh, year or so has been Citizens United. Um, I would certainly say that we have seen, we see it right now, that the uh, Supreme Court decision, um, Citizens United, did not help campaign finance reform at all. On the contrary, we have uh, a, a minute number of entities that are billionaires that are actually putting money into elections, uh, far, far more than all of the individuals combined. And so if we could do something with regard to campaign finance reform in some way, I think that indeed would help. More with Connie Morella in a moment, but here a little more Q&A with Ohio Democrat Tim Ryan. So you take the economic anxiety and stress and the costs of just living today in America, you know, with the redistricting issues, with the media, and with the money in the campaigns, and you have a perfect storm of uh, really poisonous political discourse. Isn't compromise and negotiating across the aisle taken now as a sign of weakness in this political climate that often becomes a negative campaign ad during a campaign? Yeah, I think it is, and I think it's because the district that people are representing is so very conservative or very liberal. And and so your uh, base voters uh, have the most power to uh, either elect you or unelect you. And so you, they're the same people, for example, if you're coming out of a really hard Republican district, uh, you know, you come down and call Barack Obama un-American socialist, fascist, uh, whatever the case may be. He's not born in America. Uh, I want to see his birth certificate, all of these things. And then all of a sudden, Barack Obama has a deal that he's worked out with Speaker Boehner on, say, for example, taxes. Uh, You know, that person can't then be seen as voting with President Obama because he just got done saying he's an illegitimate president. So how are you going to go back to your base voters and say, hey, well, I had to do what was in the best interest of the country? It becomes very, very difficult to go back to those folks after, you know, you've demonized each other. And that's why I think we really need to just tone down the rhetoric a little bit so that there's room for, you know, solving some of these problems. Would term limits help any? No, I actually think term limits would make things worse. Um you know, because it would, you'd have a bunch of people running around here who wouldn't know what they were doing because it just takes, it's so big of an operation just to figure things out. I think I'm just fundamentally against term limits too because I think if I, as a citizen, like my congressperson and I want to be able to vote for them and you say that person can't run anymore, then you're really disenfranchising me. So I'm fundamentally against that, but I think the, the core of this issue is the redistricting. How do you make headway on the redistricting issue? Well, we're doing it in Ohio now. There's a there's a, a group that's uh, putting it on the ballot for kind of what happened in California, where you have a, a citizens board that will uh, you know redraw the congressional districts based on 
uh, you know, having to be contiguous and having to be uh, community-based and some other, you know, media markets, those kinds of things that really would allow, you know, a, a, a more balanced approach and having citizens involved. So if the Republicans are in charge, they're not gerrymandering. And if the Democrats are in charge, they're not gerrymandering. You ha- actually have citizens who are saying, yeah, this looks like a district that really culturally and through their media markets and the way the the city and the county are uh, have grown. This is really a, a district that makes sense, uh, and it may be closer to fifty-fifty than sixty-forty or seventy-thirty. And I think that's that that can end up being very helpful. So we're passing uh, a constitutional amendment in Ohio to do that, and uh, it, and that can be very very helpful. And other states, I think, need to do that as well. Ohio Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan. When Connie Morella, former Republican congresswoman from Maryland, won her seventh re-election term by a narrow margin in the year 2000, the longtime Democratic president of the Maryland State Senate vowed to redistrict Morella right out of her seat. And sure enough, in 2002, Morella's congressional career came to an end as she was narrowly defeated by Democrat Chris Van Hollen in a redrawn district. Interestingly, during her career in Congress, Connie Morella often was characterized as a liberal Republican, voting against her party on issues like birth control, gun control, gay rights, and the environment. More now from Connie Morella on this issue of incivility in our political discourse. Compromise continues to be a dirty word, whereas it used to be the ultimate. This is how you got things done. But right now they're just thinking about their next election. A two-year election cycle is very short. I think it should be expanded on the House side. But they're looking at their primary voters. They know who they are. They appeal to them. Those voters are not saying reach out. They're not saying look at compromise, look at what's in the best interests of our great country. So there's no, um, no attraction. They yeah. feel, oh, yeah, you can't give in. You've got to stick with it. Well, then nothing gets done. It becomes a stalemate. I would also say that another major problem is that members of Congress are going home um, on Thursday nights and coming back late Monday or Tuesday morning for votes. Um, They're not moving their families to Washington. They're going back to their districts. So they have very little time to engage with their colleagues. So I would say that um, they are strangers to each other. They, they don't have opportunities to get together with their families or even with their colleagues on the other side of the aisle. You can disagree, but you can be friends. Uh, disagreement is healthy, and if you can respect your colleague, and if you know your colleague, you've got a good chance of respecting the colleague, then you can work out the differences. So I submit that more needs to be done to get members to know each other to respect each other, and then I think they'll be able to work better together. What ideas would you have to make that happen? I would say the, the elite, I think the leadership is important on both sides of the aisle. I think they could do a lot more than what they're doing. Uh, instead of thinking about the next election and how they can make their, the other party look bad, the American public, I think, would like the idea that they are looking toward working out solutions. They could have briefings that are bipartisan. They could have luncheons and social engagements that are bipartisan where they show up. So therefore, their members are going to show up. They could show by their own example 
the fact that uh, working together is good. So members of Congress are good people. Give them the opportunities and the appeal of learning who they are, respecting each other, and working together. And I think you'll find more of that happening. Hmm. It's hard to imagine, though, that uh, a candidate running for election these days uh, could win on a platform of compromise and bipartisanship. Well, they can work. They can work on the issues, and they can demonstrate that they can be trusted um, by the voters, by the constituency, to reflect their interests. And, you know, I, I think that. The constituency can also learn. It's a learning experience, and if it's done well, mm-hmm. and if there is trust in the member of Congress, which I've always found was the most important thing, you can disagree, but if your constituents trust you, then um, they'll understand compromise and they'll appreciate it, and they will learn that this is the way to get something done, working out strategic networks. And incidentally, the press, the press have a role to play, too, Over half of the respondents in recent surveys say the press and media are contributing to the polarization of the citizenry and the descent of our political discourse. More on that from former Republican Congresswoman Connie Morella, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, and our other guests when our special program continues, Seeking Civility in Political Discourse, from Peace Talks Radio. More after this break. listening to a special election season edition of Peace Talks Radio. All of the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies are available to hear through our website, peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today's program is called Seeking Civility in Political Discourse. We produced a program with the same title in 2004, but most people seem to agree that the state of our political discourse has only gotten worse since then. Most surveyed blame politicians. So far, our guests, present Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio and the former Republican Congresswoman Connie Morella of Maryland, have said that politically influenced gerrymandering of voting districts, low voter turnout at primary elections, and too much big untraceable money since the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision all contribute to electing candidates less likely to work for compromise on Capitol Hill and more likely to spout uncivil rhetoric that stymies the political process. Connie Morella had just said that the press and media have had a role in coarsening our political discourse. Let's hear more from her. We now seem to have a balkanized media. I mean, for instance, if you uh, think liberally of very much to the left, you have your television stations, your radio stations, 
your newspapers and and um, network news that you listen to or that you're a, a student of or a follower of. If you are on the right, you've got your TV, got your radio, and you've got again you've got the news on your side. So you've got it balkanized, left or right. Um, in addition to that, you have this social media. Not only social media, but I guess Web 2.0, where it's hard to know what is valid and what is not valid. I mean, what uh, what is the credibility of some of the blogs, um, some of the things that go on the Internet? Are they true or are they not? And so this is another thing that I think has added to the lack of civility in Congress. We got a lot of problems that aren't even on the table right now that that need to be uh, talked about. Ohio Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan, author of the book Mindful Nation, wherein he calls on citizens in all walks of life to consider including a meditation regimen into their daily lives to just slow down and help them cut through the noise of modern life. You know, the media has has shaped itself in a way that, uh, you know, thinking back to, you know, the 50s and 60s, where you had three, two or three major stations. Now you have a lot of them, and now you have Fox gives you one opinion, MSNBC gives you another, never the two shall meet. But what I recommend to my constituents is watch MSNBC and watch Fox. Don't just watch one of them. And then become informed and hear what both sides are saying, and then come to a decision. What I would like to do, and and again, I talked about it in, in A Mindful Nation, is like how do we teach our kids to increase their level of awareness, to increase their uh, level of attention, and to gain some insight into what they're hearing and seeing so that they turn on a TV station and instead of just automatically downloading whatever's being given to them, they actually look at it with a critical eye and they say, well, wait a minute, I don't know if that's true and ask questions and, and, and be inquisitive about it. But we've got to start teaching our kids these very critical skills, not just to be good in math and science, but to be good citizens. And that's what I think is essential, because if we don't have good citizens, we're going to have bad politics. And if we have bad politics and a lack of leadership, we're going to make bad decisions for our economy, for our education system, for research, for all these other things that we need to do. Um, so... You know, I think the media continues to feed off it because now everyone's making money off the deal. And they'll get two members of Congress to get on TV and scream at each other in the process and call it entertainment. We talk more about the media contribution to the polarization of our political discourse with media scholar Michael Carlberg, communications professor at Western Washington University, and Hakeem Bellamy, communications director for the Media Literacy Project, headquartered in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which helps do what Tim Ryan mentioned, bring critical analysis of media into classrooms. First, Michael Carlberg. The media system in this country is unique in the, in the Western world in that we've handed the entire system over to for-profit ventures who raise most of their money through advertisements, which means... The actual business model is manufacturing audience and selling them to advertisers. Uh, Within that business model, the necessity, the imperative financially, is to try and manufacture the largest and most affluent audiences possible for the minimal cost. In entertainment 
you know, we see the trends towards, say, reality TV and so forth, which reflect this basically sort of minimal cost, maximum audience uh, model, which is a form of cheap spectacle. In journalism, unfortunately, it's suffering from the same sort of imperatives, not because journalists don't want to do excellent journalism, but because the media as a business sort of presses us in this direction. So, for instance, television, most television journalism has sort of degenerated into just sort of pundits debating from the left and the right, which creates another form of sort of cheap spectacle. Uh, but even a lot of the reporting that's happening then, for instance, around the election season replicates this model. It's not critical investigative journalism helping you know, audiences actually understand the facts of the world we live in. It's more putting microphones in front of politicians or their spokespeople in order to construct, again, a sort of cheap spectacle. Hakeem? The, the idea, uh, moving back a couple, uh, of this what's good business and what's good governance, right? Like there's, there's a difference, even though it seems like the way it plays out in, in the current sphere is that there's, there's not a difference, that, that government is about somehow um, minimizing, uh, like, like Michael said, like minimizing um, resources to maximize output or labor, and uh, that shouldn't necessarily, uh, in our opinion, be the form of government. Yet what happens is, is this government starts to move more and more into a business-like sphere, which media is, is a business. You know, as it starts to move into this media sphere, it, it starts to take on those attributes of a, of a well-run business versus the attributes of a well-run government. So what we talk about and we see a lot in kind of media, media criticism and media theory is this idea as, as media as the fourth branch of government, which, which is an interesting construct, but it, it creates somewhat of a, of a chicken and egg scenario as though, as though media is responding to, uh, to our need as a people that have governments to really to, as a vehicle for government. And I think it's the other way around. I think it's actually uh, the buying of government or the takeover of government through this kind of corporate media construct. So I just want to put that out there, put that out there as an idea, because when we start to look at what makes for good business and good government, we, we, we generally start to see two totally different things. And even in the current conversation around government that's happening with the general election, you hear a lot of this rhetoric about uh, what's good business, what's good business, what's good business. And we just assume as, 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 as a, a corporate culture, as a capitalist culture, we assume that that's what's good for our country and, and good for democracy. And it's sometimes just not so. I guess they would defend, the media would defend their approach by saying it works, people are watching, they enjoy it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about why people are drawn to it. Sure. So if we think about uh, the the main ingredients of, of the kind of cheap spectacle I'm talking about, is basically, uh, you know, conflict, drama, and violence. It's the equivalent of like sugar, salt, and fat in junk food. So what we have today is a sort of junk food media. And, of course, it appeals to some real appetites that human beings have, you know, the same, in the same way that sugar, salt, and fat appeals to appetites we developed in you know, millions of years of evolution that served us well up to a point. Uh, you know, our, our attentiveness to violence and conflict also served us very well in an evolutionary context. But they don't serve us well today in a complex, modern, interdependent world where governance actually requires uh, a lot of intelligence and sort of sophisticated ability to think about issues that are complex and multifaceted. So reducing those issues down to simple oppositional binaries 
doesn't serve the public. It doesn't serve the processes of governance. Well, and you mentioned, uh, quoting from your article, that partisan politics is founded on the assumption that human nature is fundamentally self-interested and competitive. It's very easy to see how the media that both of you have described target that. But evolutionary scholars would also debate whether that's a complete correct assumption, pointing out that much of our evolution shows cooperation as another aspect of human nature. Absolutely. You know, so this is this is the sort of deep underlying issue. <clears throat> our political system and our media system are basically founded on these sort of caricatured models of human nature that were just selfish and aggressive animals. And all of the human sciences now are beginning to demonstrate that that's not the case. As you said, we're wired for competition and cooperation, for egoism and altruism. And which of these potentials is more fully expressed is actually a function in large part of our social environment, which includes our media environment and our political system. So we've constructed political and media systems based on this sort of one-dimensional view of human nature. The result is that they actually further foster and cultivate our aggressive and competitive sides and set up a sort of negative feedback loop where that's more and more what we hear and see, and so that's uh, increasingly sort of what we expect. And those aspects of our nature become more and more normalized, especially in the public sphere. Hakeem Bellamy, you mentioned a moment ago that one of the recommendations of the Media Literacy Project is to sort of round out your media uh, diet. Um, so are, are, are you recommending that people sample partisan media and then try to find what else? When we talk about like media consumption and kind of just having a more holistic diet, and I think that's a great metaphor that, that we've been sharing here. Um, really, what's on your plate? And if your plate, like Michael said, is just junk food, then you're going to feel that. Like you're going to feel that in your body. There's going to be real health outcomes to that. And so what we kind of encourage at Media Literacy Project is a diversity of consumption, but I think we also have to, like Michael said, go back to the systemic issues which make it such that there is no diversity. Just like there's food deserts in poor areas of our, of our country um, where, where all they have access to is fast food and liquor stores and things of that nature. I think we get into these kind of uh, deserts of information in our media sphere, and, and that's because there's a lack of perspective. That's because five or six companies who are, who are ultimately responsible to their shareholders and not to us as, as taxpayers and voting citizens of our country, uh, they kind of take that over and decide what we get to even see and not see. So I think when I, when I say diversify your consumption, mm -hmm. um, it takes a little bit of work, and that's what we do. We kind of we work with people on how to develop those tools and those habits, but, uh, but it definitely takes research and homework and also going to the unheard voices, and a lot of those voices are, are the dearth of women's ownership, media ownership, the dearth of uh, communities of color having some sort of media ownership. So how does media consolidation also create this this lack of perspective? Michael Kahlberg? Yeah, so I just want to uh, add to what Hakeem said. Um, so one way we can diversify our media environment is by becoming more active producers of alternative, you know, independent media so that the media sphere has a much rich, richer content in it with more people contributing. 
that's usually a sort of allied movement to critical media literacy is you know independent media production. How do you make sure that that just doesn't turn into another ill-informed pundit? Well, so this is you know clearly one of the challenges with uh, independent media production. For instance, just like thinking about the blogosphere, so to speak, you know, finding high quality. Uh, media in that is like sometimes finding a media uh, a needle in a haystack. So there are limits to how much everyone can just sort of become their own uh, media voice. But it's still an important part of of empowering citizens. And uh, in a free marketplace of ideas, some of the more enlightened and informed views should emerge, and and uh, people should be able to find some of those. But that leads to another important sort of structural part of this, which is if we really want to increase our media diet, so to speak, or diversify our media diet, increase what's on the media menu, we also really need robust, thoughtful public service media. And the reality is, again, the U.S. is one of the only Western democracies in the world that has virtually no sort of public service media. It's true we have NPR and PBS. Those are actually hybridized, you know, small public funding that's very uh, constrained by partisan ideological sorts of, uh, you know, threats and demands, uh, combined with corporate underwriting, combined with, you know, uh, subscriber donations, basically. The U.S., per capita, we spend about $1.40 on public service media every year. European countries uh, spend as much as, uh, you know, $100 per capita on public service media per, per year. In the U.K., the public service media gets 47% of the audience share. And public service media operates on a different imperative. Their goal is not to just manufacture audiences and sell them to advertisers through cheap spectacle. They actually have public-mandated missions to maximize maximize the diversity of voices and views that are circulating in ways that support democracy, not to mention their you know mandates around the arts and high quality entertainment and so forth. So I think we also it it helps to recognize that if we want a really a healthy media sphere, we need to seriously look at public service media in this country um, and how to sort of rebuild that. Let's look at solutions here. And Hakeem, from a media literacy standpoint, uh, I know media literacy is not just for young people, but there's a sharp focus on trying to get uh, this kind of thinking into schools to allow for some critical analysis. Uh, If you're addressing a group of high school students about being wiser media consumers, uh, elaborate a little bit more on what you're uh, what are the cautionary tales? What are you asking them to understand about a world where there's a Fox News that leans to the right and MSNBC that leans to the left and radio talk shows that are far right, far left? How do you help them understand uh, and what tools of thinking do you offer? Absolutely. We, you know, we, we, we encourage young people especially to do um, kind of the age-old posture of youth and, and it's to question authority. Uh, we don't want them to... to, to disrespect authority of course but we do want them to say when they're when they're being told things from from any kind of media outlet that you should always do your research and do your homework and they have more tools that than ever at their disposal in order to really if, if they want to receive a, a, a diversity a multiplicity 
of perspectives. So a lot of times the our mechanism for engaging young people is basically showing them all the tools that they have access to. And usually that, that interest right there will do the rest, especially when we can walk into a classroom and ask them all to pull out their iPhones and they immediately think that, you know, to, to school they're going to tell us to shut them off. And we're like, no, we actually want you to, <laughs> we actually want you to play with them here because we, we want you to, to, to find out um, ways to develop your own skills of digging. And so essentially we're trying to turn uh, most media consumers into their own their own newsroom, their own reporters, their mm-hmm. own investigative reporters, and to really, um, really kind of engage them in this idea of, of, of creating media. And that was something Michael alluded to earlier. Uh, when they see things missing in the media, things that don't represent them, and, and they can't find them anywhere at that point, it's like, well, yeah. are, are you, are you going to fill the void? And, so, and I think that that's really where we get a lot of engagement as far as our, our approach to media literacy education is through the creation part. And when we, once we start showing them that they, too, can create messages um, which is part of the education process. Yeah. Once we show them that they can create messages, they they understand that all these other messages are just created by people as well. Also, isn't another key question uh, asking them to uh, ask the question, is there a bias? Absolutely. Rather than saying, what is this candidate saying in 30 seconds? What are they not saying? Like, There's a whole lot you can not say in 30 seconds if you're talking about something as complex as, as immigration policy, right? You know, There's not a lot of educating you can really do in a short news piece or a campaign piece. So we, we first get them engaged in that. And then, of course, yes, we start talking about the techniques of persuasion uh, that that, be, that kind of becomes our roadmap for saying this is what you can use and is also what's used used on you, you know, by media professionals, whether they are managing a campaign or, or selling a product. Uh, these are the techniques, and, and they vary in sophistication. And, and what can you pull out? What can you start to see? And then we, we develop a whole uh, to, to use a war metaphor, we had a, we had a, a whole a whole battalion, a whole army of, of of conscientious media consumers who are then, you know, never watching TV in the same way again because now they're watching commercials and they're like, oh look, they're doing that. Oh look, they're doing that. But it, it but it, it really creates an exercise that becomes a practice that becomes a habit. And in that regard, we think that we're creating uh, more informed voters. Well, I asked you at the start, uh, Michael, to reflect on um, whether things have gotten any better. Let me ask you if you do see any sign of hope. Oh, definitely. I think the you know the media justice movement or the media environment movement is uh, really one of the I think going to become a major movement of the 21st century. You can see early signs of it already. There's a lot of outstanding work being done around media literacy, media reform, media justice, uh, independent media production, media policy advocacy. And there's a growing awareness among educators as well who, even though it's not mandated you know, in their curricular requirements, are often finding creative ways to incorporate it into their, into their uh, teaching. So I think there's a lot to be hopeful for in the long run. In the short run, I think we're passing through some, some really difficult times, and we need to recognize what's at stake and the importance of sort of rolling up our sleeves and working towards some rather profound uh, structural changes. Michael Carlberg, professor of communication at Western Washington University, and earlier Hakeem Bellamy, communications director for the Media Literacy Project in Albuquerque, New Mexico. More from Congressman Tim Ryan and former Congresswoman Connie Morella, as well as the story of a woman who's trying an idea of her own to address the problem of incivility in our political discourse. When Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with our special program called Seeking Civility in Political Discourse. I'm Paul Ingalls. Former eight-term Republican Congresswoman Connie Morella of Maryland is devoting much of her time these days to finding solutions to the rancor in our political conversation. You know, one of the things that I continue to think is important is to, to get the leadership of both parties to care about this, to know that this really will enhance um, the um, image of the parties in the minds of the people. What have you tried to do to do that? Sending letters to them and <laughs> discussing it, discussing it with them, and even talking about a work schedule, a work schedule so that mm-hmm. members will be in Washington for a period of time and then they get a week off to go home. Some of that is happening. I mean, so they could be here, be together, and then go back to their districts. Mm-hmm. Well, some of these folks are colleagues of yours from, from those years in Congress and maybe friends too. Uh, do they seem interested in it, or are they uh, throwing their hands up and saying it just can't happen anymore? No, no. They, you know, once once you're a member of Congress, when you leave, you still have it in your blood. You are there because you love the institution. I mean, as Alexander Hamilton, there's a big expression in the Congress about here the people govern, and and so we care about public service. We just had our annual meeting yesterday and had a, a number of discussions about the civility project and what more can be done because we care about the institution. And um, so, yes, they're not, they may be saying, I don't know what more we can do. I hope it changes. Um, but they all care about it. They're not totally giving up um, with that. Given what you just said, to see trust in Congress dip to 10% must be emotionally excruciating for you. Yes, it is. I'm very sorry to to see that happen. Uh, And I always talk to people about what Congress is all about, serving the people, that it's still the best institution we have, and that all of us have a role to play. People have a role to play also. The solution, I think, begins with voters sending to Washington uh, more pragmatic, uh, results-oriented members who are willing to compromise to get things done. George Washington, when he was 16 years of age, he wrote down rules of civility, and one of them is uh, one that I think is particularly appropriate. He said, every action done in company ought to be done with some sign of respect to those who are present. So I say that because if you want to look at what it means, it's that we should respect each other. If we respect each other, there's an opportunity for trust, and then there's an opportunity for working together, working out differences. If we respect each other, then civility is part of it. Uh, and I think we can get more done. So good old George Washington, when he was 16 years of age, copied down one of the best rules of civility and, and good behavior. Well, I'm hopeful it, it will change. Current Ohio Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan, author of the book Mindful Nation. You know, there's, a, there's an opportunity in a momentum gathering around the country right now, and I see it uh, when I'm on the book tour uh, or when I go to different events around the country, in the mindfulness community, uh, in the yoga community, 
um, of people who are really wanting to get more involved and and bring a more peaceful, I think, uh, approach to the the public discourse and recognize that they are not going to agree with their congressman or anybody 100% of the time. And so I'm really hopeful because I've been meeting people who are really excited about how we could possibly shift the dialogue in the country to a more sane dialogue and doing that by pushing out things like mindfulness and and things like yoga and these things that really ground people and balance their nervous systems and calm their amygdalas and allow them to be, you know, human beings who can have disagreements without having like a lot of personal venom involved in the whole thing. So I'm hopeful and that that is a, a country that's not too, too far away. And uh, I, I get a lot of inspiration from the people who are out there trying to now get involved in the system um, to bring about that change. And I think that's really, really exciting. And again, I see the Marines are implementing mindfulness. We've got the corporations that are doing it. We see that, uh, you know, the science is really starting to come online in a big way. And so the case is being built for us really to move this stuff into these institutions. And I think as we do that, we can reconnect with those basic American values uh, of self-reliance and, uh, you know, frugality and, 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 and being a true conservative and the sense of not wasting our resources and, and really shifting the way our neighborhoods look and our downtowns look and our transportation systems look and our ener- what we kind of energy use we have. I think this can all change if this motivated group of people get involved in the political process. And I see they are, and I want to be a part of that. Our complete interviews with Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan and former Republican Congresswoman Connie Morella can be heard through our website, peacetalksradio.com. We'll next meet a woman, a documentary filmmaker, who has felt so disappointed in how so many politicians and citizens engage rudely with each other over politics that she created a project she thinks may help some. My name is Julie Winoker, and I'm executive director of Talking Eyes Media, which is a nonprofit media company that focuses on social justice issues. I'm also the producer and director of Bring It to the Table, which is a documentary project and web platform that is aiming to break down the political divide. Um, I have a 17-year-old son, and one evening at our kitchen table, he said to me, Mom, you are the most intolerant person I've ever met. And I said, are you out of your mind? What do you mean, me, intolerant? That's impossible. And he said, well, when you don't agree with somebody's political point of view, you just don't even listen. You just dismiss it, you know? And when he said that to me, I really smarted. It just did not feel good because I see myself as somebody who's very tolerant and I'm a, a documentary filmmaker. I am, you know, I'm an inquisitive person and I'm always exploring and trying to empathize with other people's points of view. And when he said that to me, I realized he probably was right, that I was not listening to people whose politics I didn't agree with. So I thought, you know, if, if, if I'm part of the problem, then most of us are probably part of the problem in a way that we don't even recognize, we don't self-identify. 
And so I just thought, you know, I'd like to, I'd love an opportunity to go sit in other people's homes and sit at their kitchen tables and hear what they have to say uh, about their political points of view. And because that is, you know, quite challenging, it's not so easy to get entry into other people's homes and have them speak openly, I thought, you know what, I'm going to bring my table to them. Instead of having them, you know, come to, to me, I'm going to go out and I'm going to invite people to sit down and talk to me. So tell us about what you've developed, Bring It to the Table. So Bring It to the Table, I'm actually taking a small cafe table across the country and inviting people to sit down at my table and talk about their political beliefs and the roots of their beliefs. And I conduct these, these conversations uh, on camera so that we can then bring them back into our office and edit them together into some sort of a, a, a real sampling and a pulse of what Americans are thinking and talking about and, and the perspectives that they're approaching, uh, their political points of view. At these table talks, as I like to call them, they're, they're um, a, a chance for somebody to actually sit and speak without feeling confronted without feeling defensive about what they believe. It's really intended to be a safe platform. Tell me, how do you identify politically and why? I consider myself a conservative. Um, and uh, why? It just philosophically, I'm the, that's where I'm the most comfortable. But I'm not like a lot of my hardcore right-wing friends. I, I, don't, I don't see the government necessarily as inherently evil. I just think it's pretty inefficient and, and oppressive at times. I ask questions and I listen to what it is that somebody uh, identifies as the issues that are most important to them and then I try to probe into that and where does that, uh, you know, where, where does that belief come from? What's happened to you in your life that you've witnessed, that you've experienced, that might inform your political beliefs? Part of the, the biggest problem we're facing in America today is the echo chamber we're creating by surrounding ourselves only with people whose point of view we agree with and only listening to the news sources that will affirm what we already believe. So, you know, a lot of the attempt of my project is to get people to listen. You know, listening is something we're terrible at, at this point. Liberals and progressives, I think, are actually very pragmatic because we're willing to say, you know, I hear you, these are the struggles that you're going through. Let's figure out a way that we can use our uh, collective strength to help lift you up, and then we're collectively stronger. Um, there's something about it that's actually very sober and very civilized because it's this moment of saying, well, here's what I believe, and then trying to kind of peel back some layers about why they believe that, what has informed that. And then invariably within our conversation, one of the questions I'll ask is, what in your beliefs crosses over to the other side? And I would say 99% of the people who sit at the table have something in their belief system that is contradictory to the, you know, the political identity that they align with. And so a lot of the process of the conversation is about uh, you know, revealing that we have very uh, nuanced but also conflicted beliefs.
The other piece of it is then the webisodes that we're putting together is this amalgam of voices so that we can begin to have portraits of Americans speaking on topics in a more nuanced way. My religion is my choice and the life choices that I make are my own, whether it's who I marry or how I raise my children or, or, or anything of that sort. Those are things that, that I can impose on myself. Uh, but that I have absolutely no right to impose on others. I think, I think the, the strong liberal movement tends to have unrealistic goals and that the only way to achieve those is to impose an ideal on the public that's not, that's not realistic. Simply said, uh, conservatives believe everyone's born with equal opportunity and the liberals think everyone should have equal outcome. So, you know, there's the, the, the real-time experience of the table but then there's also the online experience of the table, which will be being able to watch these videos and then on the next layer to weigh in on what's being said at the table through social media, because we'll be incorporating Facebook and Twitter as the platforms we use to have the conversation ongoing based on the questions at the table and the videos that we post. Julie Winoker, who talked with us from her offices in New Jersey, we have links to a longer interview with her and to her websites for the Bring It to the Table project on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Also, extended interviews with all our guests and other useful links on this topic of seeking civility and political discourse at our website. Peacetalksradio.com is where you can hear all the episodes in our series and sign up for a free monthly newsletter or subscribe to our podcast. Importantly, it's where you can make any size contribution to Good Radio Shows Incorporated our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your public radio station. So if you think it's a good idea to preserve a slice of the media landscape for talk about peace and conflict resolution, please consider a tax-deductible donation. It really will help. All at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you and from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation and KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For co-producer of this episode, Suzanne Kreider, and all of us at Peace Talks Radio, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.